So as we work our way through this passage today, there's going to be some things that pop out, some things that, that we're going to see. And, and John's not writing these things just to be facts that you and I fathom or facts that we file away in a, in a file cabinet somewhere. But what John is trying to do is to provide us evidence of God's everlasting love for his creation. He's going to use some language and some imagery here that we, we haven't really seen before, and I think it'll make sense once we begin to explain what that means. But, but what John's trying to do is, is, again, he's trying to refute the claims of the Gnostics. The Gnostics says that, that, that the spiritual matter is all good and, and physical matter is all evil. And therefore, if Jesus is spiritual, he can't be physical. Because for Jesus to be spiritual and to be God and then take on flesh would make him evil. So they refuted that. John's going to come back and say, no, Jesus is God's son. And if you deny that, then you deny the testimony that God's given, and you're really calling God a liar. But he's going to provide all these, these proofs. But, but again, I don't want you to read them just as facts. It's easy to do that. Go, okay, what are the facts? What are the facts? Well, the fact is, da, 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 da. that's really not all that, that John's trying to do here. He's trying to show us the character of God. So he, he's not just showing us what God does. But he's trying to show us who God is. And then, as a result of that, who God is striving to make us into. So here's the first thing. There's going to be six things I'm going to give you. And uh, if you're taking notes, you can just jot these things down and, and, and we'll walk our way through it. Uh, the first thing I would say is this, that, that, that the God that, that we are seeing in this passage is the God who comes for us. Now, that may not sound like a big deal, but he is the God who comes for us. Look what he says in, in verse 6. The first part says, this is he who came by water and blood. Now, I'll explain the water and blood thing in just a minute, but, but grab this. This is the God who came. He came for us. God did not have to do that. God is perfectly fine and complete in heaven by himself. He doesn't need us. He doesn't have to have us. But God, in his love, chose to come to his creation. God came for us. And so in this passage, it says that he came to us. It's showing that God is intentional, that he's not just a a passive God who sits back. He's not a God, as some people say, who kind of created everything, wound up the clock, and then just backed away and waited for the, the alarm to go off. That's not God. God is very intentional in his pursuit of his people. He's very intentional in his pursuit of you and me. God is relentless. He continues to pursue us in order to bring us into a relationship with himself. And so he is the God who came for us. In John chapter 1, the, the gospel of John, if you want to flip back over there real quick, in John chapter 1, uh, the same author, John, writes this in a way to, to remind us of, of who Christ was and what he came to do. In, in, in the first five verses, he says this, In the beginning was the Word. Now he's talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. So Jesus was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus is God, he's saying. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And this life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is an overcomer. He lives in us and he makes us overcomers. It's part of what Dalton shared with us last week. Look down at verse 9 and 9 through 14. He says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world And the world was made through him. So he entered the world that he created. And yet the world, the the creation, his own creation, did not know him. He came to his own, 
And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but born of God. And so the word became flesh. It dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In this passage, we see that we have a God who didn't just create and abandon who didn't just create and when sin came into the world said, I'm done with that. But he is a God that pursues us relentlessly coming to us. He didn't wait for us to pursue him because that would be impossible on our own. Do you realize today that if you're a believer in Christ, it's not that you pursued God, but that God pursued you. He had to come to us first. Jesus says, it's not that, that you love me, but that I loved you. And so he comes to us, he pursues us, he does a work inside of our heart, which then draws us to him. From our perspective, that work begins and we think, well, I'm going to give my heart to Jesus. Well, you know why you're going to give your heart to Jesus? Because he gave his heart for you. Because he came pursuing you, and in that you discovered what real love was, and you as a response have now given your heart to Christ. So he didn't wait for us to pursue him. He brought the gospel to us. He was the gospel. So he came to us, and he came for us. Why did he do that? Because that's who he is. He didn't have to. But he chose to. It's, it's a God who comes for those who can't. He comes for those who can't. That's the first thing. The second characteristic of God, of, of his character that I see, is that he is a God who wants to be known. He is a God that wants to be known. And, and what I mean by that is this if God didn't choose to reveal himself, we would never find God. We would never just stumble upon God by ourselves. We would never have the intellectual capacity to understand that there is a God that is out there apart from him. He has to reveal himself. And he is a God who doesn't just have to reveal, but he is a God that wants to reveal. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know his heart. He wants us to know his love and his salvation. He wants us to know how he has provided for our salvation, even though we are sinners. So he makes himself known. He comes and he confirms this love for us. And this is where we get into the, the discussion of the water and the blood and the spirit. God is making himself known. And so what, what John is going to say in this passage is that, that this is the one that came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not just by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one that testifies because the spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. And so in this passage, he's going to talk about water and blood and Spirit. And you're going, what in the world is he talking about? When you study this in commentaries and different, different authors that have written, there's, there's a, several different views of, of what this might mean. But the one that's most generally accepted is this, that when he talks about the water, he's talking about Jesus at his baptism. When he talks about the blood, he's talking about Jesus at his death. And when he talks about the Spirit, he's talking about the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. These three things were evidence that, that God approved and accepted the work that Jesus did on our behalf. Let me explain. When, when, when Jesus went into the waters to be baptized by John, 
He went into the waters. John baptized him. And you remember what happened? The, the heavens opened. The, the, the Spirit descended. And God spoke. And God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. What was God doing at that moment? He's saying, listen, this is my son. He is the one that I have sent to be your savior, to be your redeemer, to be the only one that can, 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 can pay for your sins and to give you access back to me. God was testifying. God was offering proof in that moment that Jesus was acceptable to him, that Jesus was the one that he had sent. Jesus wasn't just another prophet. He wasn't just another man with a message. He was, he was the son of God. As John would say, he was with God in the beginning. He was God. And yet he came and made his dwelling among us. And so he says that that was proven. God was a God that wanted to be known. How, how do we know that? Because God spoke at the baptism and God said, this is my son. This is the one I'm sending to bring you back to me. So he comes and he confirms it at the baptism. Jesus then lives his life perfectly and he goes to the cross to die in our place. And God confirms it with the blood at the, at the death of Jesus Christ. He comes and, and in the water at the baptism, it's kind of the bookends of Jesus' ministry, the beginning of his ministry. And, and there's God speaking, saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. But also at his death, there's so many things that God is busy doing at the time of Jesus' death. His sacrificial atonement for us. And the Father is going to testify again that that death on the cross by Christ was acceptable. It was enough to pay for your sins and for my sins. You say, well, where do we see that? Well, on the cross, God executes the judgment that we deserved. The judgment that was necessary to bring us back into relationship with Christ. God is executing the judgment necessary for the forgiveness of our sins while Jesus is on that cross. To the point that Jesus is hanging on the cross saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wave after wave after wave of judgment being poured out upon Jesus. And yet we see at that moment these miracles that God's going to work. At Jesus' death, these miracles are going to occur that are going to confirm the acceptance of the sacrificial death of Jesus. Remember, as Jesus hung on the cross... At noontime, when the sun should have been the brightest, what happened? Skies turned black. Sign that God's doing something extraordinary in that moment. When Jesus died and gave up his spirit, the, the, the Bible says that the, the graves of some of the saints in Jerusalem were opened and, and those people that had died were seen living and walking the streets. That's a picture of the resurrection that was to come and, and there's that miracle of the graves that are opened. Maybe one of the greatest miracles that occurred at, at, the, at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is, is not the graves popping open and, and dead people coming back to life, but maybe the greatest thing is this, that hardened soldier who had nailed him to the cross, ridiculed and mocked him as he died, falling to his knees and saying, this really was the Son of God. A hardened heart transformed in that moment as Jesus hung there dying for all of us. 
We know that as Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. A picture of God opening up salvation to all who will come. What's God doing at the blood, at the death of Jesus? He is testifying again. This gift of my only son is acceptable to pay for all the sins of humanity. God is screaming at that moment. It is finished. It is done. Debt has been paid. He wants us to know that. He wants us to see the character of himself, the character of God revealed through Christ on the cross as as Christ suffers to save us, as he loves those who are persecuting him, as he is forgiving those who are nailing him to the cross, as he's blessing those who have followed him, as he's assuring those that that salvation is, is there, that the debt has been paid, that everything is finished. And as he works to remove our guilt and our shame for our own sins. Water, blood, but also spirit. On the day of Pentecost, God screams again that there is a new covenant. There is a new relationship that has begun. He takes these disciples who are so scared they run and leave their Savior, and he turns them into bold witnesses who are willing to die as Jesus died in order to get the gospel out to other people. He fills through the Spirit. He fills His followers. And on Pentecost, we see a transformation of these disciples. They were ordinary men before the Spirit of God came to dwell in them and to fill them and to transform them. And then they became bold and confident, committed to the cause of Christ because their hearts and their lives had been forever changed. God now wasn't just out there But God was in here, dwelling in them just as Jesus had promised it would occur. The water, the blood, the Spirit, all these things had had been prophesied years before in the Old Testament. And every bit of it was coming true in Christ. And it's like God had said it once and now he is saying, I told you so. I told you so. I told you so. I'm testifying that Jesus is it. And so in this moment and through the, the, the water, through the blood, through the Spirit, they all three agree. They all three testify. They all three bear witness to the fact that Jesus was who God said he was, who the Gospels proclaimed him to be. Despite what the Gnostics would say, despite man's best way to try to package this thing and to make it rational, none of that mattered. He says, the gospel is true. How do we know it? Because it was testified to at his baptism. It was testified to at his death. And it was testified to again as God's spirit comes to live in the believers then, but also as God's spirit comes to live in you and I today. All three of these agree. They work in unison to to reveal God's character, to reveal his heart. So first, he is God who comes for us. Second, he is a God that wants to be known. He, 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 He makes it known, not just through his creation, but each step of the way. Here's the thing. If you really want to know if God is true, if you really want to know that God is real, if you really want to know where you stand in a relationship with God, God wants you to know that. He's not playing hide and seek. He's not saying, you know, let's, let's do Russian roulette and we'll just roll the, the thing and, and see if it fires. He wants you to know that you're his. 
He wants you, he, he, he wants to remove all uncertainty. That's what he says, John says here, I, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants to be known because it's only in knowing him that we find and experience eternal life. So he comes for us. He wants to be known. The third thing is this, is that he is a God who is totally trustworthy. He is totally trustworthy. In verse 9 of this passage, he kind of speaks tongue-in-cheek, but, but listen to what John says. He says, if we receive the testimony of men, well, the testimony of God is greater. He says, you guys are quick to listen to the Gnostics. <laughs> you're, you're quick to believe everything you read on Facebook. You're quick to believe all these theories that are out there. Why are you so slow to believe the Word of God when He is trustworthy and true? When he's never once misled you, he's never once lied to you, why are you slow to listen to the God that can be completely trusted? If you're going to receive the testimony of men, man, the testimony of God is even greater. You know why? Because we as humans have a limited vision. Some of us have a greater mental capacity than others, but even the greatest thinker, the greatest philosopher, the greatest theologian, the greatest pastor or priest or prophet or king, any of those, even Solomon in all of his wisdom, he falls short compared to what God's got. We can only see so far, but God sees it all. Not one thing in all of human history that has ever happened that left God scratching his head going, man, I didn't see that coming. There's not one time that God's had to speak and then back up and say, well, I messed up. Not once. When God speaks or God reveals or God makes something known, we can take that to the bank. But what John says to his readers here is, you guys are quick to listen to others, but you're slow to listen to God. You're quick to believe what you read out there or what you hear out there, but when something comes from God, you go, well, give me some time to think about that. And he says it shouldn't be that way. Because what God reveals, the testimony of God is greater than any testimony of man. So he says here, he is a God that is totally trustworthy. There's no blind spots. There's no partial picture. There's no limited perspective. There's no surprises that pop up that God didn't see coming. When, when God speaks or when God makes a promise, when God reveals his plans for mankind or his plans for you personally, when he instructs you on how you should live, when he warns you of the consequences that come when you don't, he can be trusted. God says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And when you feel alone, guess what? You can take that to the bank that you're not. When he says, I will comfort you in your grief, and you grieve, he is right there in the midst of that with you. When he says that you are an overcomer, you are an overcomer because he lives in you. It's not your own strength. It's in our weakness that his strength is proven to be all that we need. We can trust his word. In fact, he is more trustworthy than any other person. 
His word is true. His revelation is trustworthy. He will never, ever be proven wrong. And we can fully trust him. The truth of God is far greater than any theory man can ever come up with. There's a lot of people that try to explain away the things of God. The Gnostics were trying to go, okay, well, if, if, if spirit's good and matter's evil, then, then these two things can't come together. Well, then how do you explain Jesus' life? And here's the explanation. Well, when Jesus got baptized, at that moment he became um, um, spirit-filled, and, and so God just kind of filled him and hovered over him, and, and then he lived his life. And then before he died... The spirit was removed. And so, you know, it wasn't that, that Jesus was fully God or fully man. He was just kind of in between. They, they came up with all kinds of theories to explain away what they couldn't understand. And we live in a world that tries to do the same thing. When our world can't understand spiritual things, they just try to explain it away. Some men wanting to sound superior and sound more intellectual than the rest of the world instead of just taking the gospel at face value and understanding the message of the gospel and applying it to our lives and letting God transform us with the gospel, they've got to explain everything away. The truth of God is far greater than any theory of man. The world is quick to trust man's theories, but we as believers should be even quicker to trust the word of God. The fourth thing about the character of God that I see in this passage is that he is a God who doesn't just give life, but he also gives himself. He doesn't just give life, but he gives us himself. In other words, God doesn't just let us live. God could have done this. God could have said, okay, listen, you guys sinned, you failed, you messed up. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my son, he's going to die on the cross, going to forgive your sins, and, and when you die, you'll go to heaven. God could have done that. But he didn't. He says, yes, you sinned. Yes, you failed. Yes, I'm going to send my son to die on the cross. But you know what? We're going to go one step farther. I'm going to dwell in you. I'm not just going to give you life and see you at the end. But I'm going to live in you to give you hope and give you meaning and to give you purpose and to give you value every moment in between. I'm not just going to give you life. I'm going to give you myself. I'm not going to just let you live, but I'm going to come live inside of you. Verse 10, he says this. He, he, he says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Christ has come to live in us. He's come to dwell in us. And, and his word comes to dwell in us because when he comes, he brings his word with us. And this testimony of who he is and what he's done, it comes to be a part of the very fabric of our lives. So we have him and we have his spirit within us. His truth resides in us. We're not just forgiven and forgotten, but we are indwelt and empowered by the presence of God. We're not alive and yet alone. We are one with him. We are in community with him. There is a sweet fellowship that exists between us and our God. He's not distant He's not far away. He's not just taking care of the sin problem and say, I'll see you in heaven. He is walking with us every single moment of every single day. He makes his home in us. And he plants his truth deep within us. And that truth that is planted deep within us 
begins its work of transforming the whole way that we see the world and the whole way that we live our lives. He transforms us from within by the power of His Spirit. So he, he, He's a God who doesn't just give us life, but He gives us Himself. The fifth thing that I see is that He is a God who gives us a choice. Verses 11 and 12. This is the testimony. So he's been talking about this testimony. Whoever believes in God has the testimony. And, 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 and we haven't made God out to be a liar. Let me, let me grab this in verse 10 real quick, Diane. Put that back on the screen, verse 10. He says this. He says, whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in him. But whoever does not believe in God has made him to be a liar. Because he's not believing the testimony that God's given uh, about his Son. So here's what he's saying. If you doubt that Jesus is who... God says he is, then you're just calling God a liar because God's made it clear who Jesus is. And if you say, yeah, well, Jesus is a great prophet and he's a great guy, he's a good moral teacher, but he's not the savior of the world, then you're calling God a liar. If we take the word of God and the instruction that God gives us and we set that aside in order to do what we want to do, then we're still calling God a liar. And, and this is something that I still struggle with because there's times in, in my life where I'd rather do what I want to do instead of what God's word says I ought to do. In the moments when I do that, what I'm saying is, God, I don't believe that your way's best. I don't believe that if I do this, this is the result. I, I don't know that I believe you because if I did believe you, and if I did believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died in my place, who bore my sins, who is coming again to judge the living and the dead, if I had believed all of that, then you know what? I would, I would want to live a different way. And so there's moments in my life where by my actions, I would never say it with my words, but with my actions, I'm saying, God, I don't know that I believe that. And in doing that, we're calling God a liar. And, and so he's, he's saying here, be careful with that. Back to number five now. He's a God that gives us a choice. Look at verses 11 and 12. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. And whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. He's saying the testimony of God is true. It's trustworthy. You can take it to the bank. Testimony of God is that Jesus was his son who died in our place, who offers us salvation. And if you have the son, you have life. Why? Because life is in his son. If you have the son, you have life. But if you do not have the son, you do not have life. There's a real movement in Christianity today to, to simply focus on the good side of the gospel. This thing called grace that's so amazing. And not to focus much on sin and the consequences of that. I heard Joel Osteen say once, we just want to focus on the good. We don't want to talk about the sin. That's not a complete gospel. That's not the gospel at all. The, the message of God is there's a choice. 
And that choice comes with a consequence. You can believe God and, and, and you can live with him forever. You can reject the revelation of God and think you know better and suffer the consequences of life apart from God. God has chosen to love us and he's chosen to make that, that love known. But he gives us the same choice and that is to love him and to make him known. Love can't be forced. It has to be chosen. I can't make you love somebody else. I can't make one of my children love the other children. <laughs> I laugh at, at, at growing up with mom and dad, I love them. But my brothers and I would get in a fight. And mom's solution was tell your brother you love him. I didn't at that moment. Tell him you love him. Go to your room until you can tell your brother you love him. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so what would you do? I love you. Okay. Did that change my heart? No, it got me out of my room, but it didn't change my heart. And, and, and what God's after in this is to change our hearts. He doesn't say, I just want you to mouth the words you love me. I really want you to choose from your heart to love me. And when you do, there's life. But until you do, there's only death. And it presents those two options. And as we share the gospel with others, guys, we, we need to be willing to present both sides of that. Now, we speak the truth and we speak it in love. We speak it to, to warn and to call them to Christ. But God chose to love us and to let that love be known. And he wants us to choose to love him and to let that love be known. This choice that he gives us comes with a consequence. That's positive or negative, but it's a consequence. And God makes clear here both options as a warning and as a promise that choices bring consequence. Whoever has the son has life, but whoever does not have the son does not have life. Love for God is never forced. Our choice, though, that we make will carry over into eternity. So he's already shown them a difference here. You can believe God or you can blaspheme God. You can, you can believe his word, or you can call him a liar. That's one choice. The choice he gives us here is that we can embrace God and experience God, or we can reject God and regret that decision one day. So the fifth thing is that he is a God that gives us a choice. That's his character. Number six is that he is a God that removes all fear. For his children. When Christ comes to dwell in us, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe. He's talking to believers who've established a relationship with God. And he removes all fear. I, I write to you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. I want you to know, he says, that this love that we've begun will last 
forever. This relationship that you have begun with me and that I've begun with you is a relationship that will continue all the way through eternity. You're not saved today and lost tomorrow. You are mine. You're saved and you're secure. You know why? Because it's not you holding on to God. But it's God that is holding on to you. It's a huge difference. If my salvation is dependent upon my ability to hold on to God, my grip slips. There's days I let go. But my salvation is secure because it's not me holding on to God. It's God holding on to me. And he will never let go. I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. Not just life at this moment, but life that is eternal. Our salvation is secure in him. He provides every assurance that we will ever need that the work that Christ did on the cross was enough. It was enough to overcome every obstacle that our sin has placed in the way of us in a relationship with God. Our sins past, present, and future have all been dealt with on the cross. So he provides everything that we need, and then we can find our rest in him. This perfect love that he offers us, the Bible says, perfect love casts out all fear. You can know that you know that you know that you know that Jesus lives in you. You can know that if you were to breathe your last breath later this afternoon, that you could be in the presence of God, not because of anything you've done, but because of Jesus' work on our behalf. We're freed from fear and we're freed to love. This is an incredible portrait of God's incredible character. And because he lives in us, we are made overcomers. However, if we stop right here and just look at this passage and say, man, that's neat to know those things about God, then I think we miss something. And this is what we miss. That if that is the the true picture of who God is, and he dwells in me, then that's the image that he wants to begin to emerge out of my life. So let's look at these six things real quick one more time and talk about how these things emerge in our lives, how they come to be. It's God working in us. And so if our understanding of this, it just stops with, with, oh, that's a neat thing about God. That's cool. I can file that away. It, it ought to be, let me look at that and say, no, is there proof that that's emerging in my life? Just as these things are, are, are true about God, they ought to be true about us. God's desire is for these six character traits to be formed in us. And just as they tell us a lot about God, our lives ought to tell others a whole lot about God. So he wants to testify through us to the world of his great love. And just as he's demonstrated that love through Christ, he wants to demonstrate that love now through you and I to a lost world. So he works in us to forge this character, enabling us and empowering us to do six things. He enables and empowers us to take the gospel to others. Just as he came to us, he now has given us the mission to take the gospel to others. That's part of what it is to to have his character in us. It's not that I get saved and I just want to keep it all to myself. But I come to know Jesus and then I am sent to the world. I, I take the gospel to others just as he brought the gospel to me. That means that I need to be intentional in, in initiating gospel conversations with those who don't know. 
I do what God did for me. I go to those who cannot come. I go to those who would never come. I go to those that, 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 that see no reason to come. And I take the gospel to them knowing that the gospel is what has the power to transform their lives. So the first thing that I need to look for in my life is saying, am I taking the gospel to others? Is there a desire in me to make God known to those around me? Or do I just talk about the gospel in safe circles, in a holy huddle, where I know my friends believe and I know they'll, they'll embrace it and I know that they'll support me? Or do I take it to those who will not come if they don't get the gospel? It's risky. But it was risky for Jesus to come. So we, he came to us, we take the gospel to others. The second thing that we look for in our own lives is this. Is the, is the, the, I'm conf- am I confirming the gospel Am I confirming it to the minds of others with a Christ-like character that shines through? In other words, when people look at me, can they find tangible proof that grace really does transform a heart? When they look at me, they listen to me, they observe me, can they find proof that grace really works? Or do I just look like every other person in the world? Does my life testify that grace is real? Is my life lived in such a way that God would look at me and say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased? Is is the character of God coming through my life in such a way that it provides evidence to others? It did in Jesus' life. Does it in mine? Third thing that I need to look for is am I trusting God's truths over man's theories? Ephesians talks about us being easily swayed by every form and teaching of man. Or am I anchored to the truth? And those teachings come and there's something inside of me that says, that's not of God. Show it to me in the scripture. Is is the word of God my anchor? Is it the thing I go back to again and again? Or do I believe everything that I read? Do I listen to every voice that I hear? Or do I bring it back to the scriptures and say, I need to see that in God's word? Do I trust God's truths over man's theories? Am I anchored to his truth even when the world believes otherwise? Am I trusting God even when I can't fully understand it or even if I can't explain it to others? Am I trusting in what he has revealed in his word? There's a lot of things about God's word I can't explain. I can't even understand. But at the end of the day, I've got to say, you know what? If God said it and he is trustworthy and he is true, then I've got to build my life on this. The fourth thing I need to look for in my own life, it's part of this character of God that's, that's, that's coming through my life. Is am I a person who just offers life to others or am I a person who does life? with others it's a big difference you ever seen those guys standing on the street corner big sign turn or burn repent and they got all these signs and they're screaming at the darkness you would ask them what are you doing I'm offering life a choice but they're not walking with anybody it's a big difference in offering advice or offering the gospel 
and saying, let's do life together. Let's figure this out in community. Let's figure this out as we do life hand in hand, iron sharpening iron, brother to brother, sister to sister, believer with believer. God didn't just give us the truth. God gave us himself. He did life with us. And now he dwells in us. And I believe that he wants that to be a part of us. That we don't just come and and get facts and go back to our own little places and do our own little thing. But that we say, you know what? I am called not just to speak truth, but to live it out with you. Not just to offer life but to do life together. It's the difference between screaming at the darkness and lighting a candle. It's a lot of folks that have made big names for themselves screaming at the darkness. But it's those who light the candle and walk alongside the people that are in darkness, lighting the path and showing them the gospel and letting them see it in your own reflection and in your own life, those are the ones that make an eternal difference. It's those of you that let your lost family see the difference that Jesus is making in your life. And at first it's strange And at first they push back, but they can't argue against the proof that something's happened to change your life. And God uses that to draw them. So you're not just speaking life, but you're doing life with them. You're in community, doing life together. The fifth characteristic of God that needs to be emerging in our life is that we need to offer others a clear choice. Listen, it's not enough just to live a good life in front of others. We have got to get to the point with those in our circle that we say, guys, listen, this is life and death. This this is life and death. When we have Jesus, we have life. Jesus is not just about cleaning up your life and making you a better person. He's about transforming you into his image. And he that has the Son has life. And he that does not will never see life. And we've got to speak that truth to those that God has given us influence with. You say, well, I'm just going to live my life in front of the world and hope they see it. Well, that's great, but that's not what the Bible says. We do live it, but we also get to the point like John did where he says, let me just lay it on the line, guys. You got Jesus, you got life. You lack Jesus, you lack life. And this goes with you through eternity. So I would say this, offer the clear choice. Speak of grace, but also speak of judgment. Speak of salvation, but also speak of the consequence of sin. Because both are needed. And in love, with grace, offer them a choice. 
and then let the Holy Spirit do his work. You don't argue anybody into the kingdom of God. You don't debate them into the kingdom of God. You give them a clear choice. And you trust the Holy Spirit to do the rest. Don't push, don't rush. Just speak the truth and leave the results to God. And then finally, the sixth thing that we see in the character of God that we really ought to be seeing in our own life is that we ought to be able to assure others who know Christ that Jesus is enough. We ought to be able to assure those who don't know Jesus yet that Jesus is enough. That by knowing him, they can have eternal life. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If our faith and our hope is in Christ, then we are safe and secure in him no matter what. So let me close by asking you this. How much of these six characteristics do you see in your life? How much of these six things are are you seeing proof of in your own life? Now, again, you may be a brand new believer, and these things are, 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 are maybe not fully formed in you yet. But if you've been a believer for years and years, you ought to be seeing some of these things emerge. Some of these things come into maturity in your own life. If some of them are missing, rest assured that God's not finished with you yet. Okay? I, I do not want you to leave here today and say, well, two of those six things I'm, I'm not seeing yet. I must not be a Christian. God's still at work in your life, and he's still going to mature these things in you. And he will keep working to finish what he has begun. But I would say to you that if you profess to be a believer, and you've done so for some time now, and you're not seeing any of the fruits that we're talking about of God's character beginning to emerge in you, then that ought to be cause for you to stop and to ask why. Take a moment this morning and ask God why. God, is is something missing? Am I resisting what you're wanting to do in my life? Do I, do I have this relationship that, that I tell everybody that I've got? Or, or do I just have facts that I've filed away so that when somebody asks me a question, I can sound biblical? God wants nothing more than for you to know with certainty that you're his. And he will do whatever he needs to do if you will ask him in order to let you know where you stand at this very moment with God. If we earnestly desire to know where we stand with God, he's not going to leave us in the dark. He will make it clear because he wants us to know with certainty. So as we close today, I want to ask you to take just a minute. Honestly evaluate where you are in this process. And then ask God to make it clear to you. If this relationship exists... If it's a relationship that's there, but it's just immature and it needs to grow, then to place within you that desire to help you to grow and to have these things begin to to emerge more in your life. But as we close, would you really do business with God for just a minute? And if you're not sure, or if you need to talk further, man, I'll be hanging around after church today. I'd love to visit with you a little while. Uh, If you want to make an appointment and get together this week, we can do that as well. But listen, John wrote these things that we might know that we have eternal life.
There's no need for you to worry or to doubt. God will make known to you whether you're there or whether you're not. And if you're not, now's the time that you commit your life to Christ. It's not about being religious. It's about having him come dwell in you and change you from the inside out. That's what he desires to do. Let's pray.